This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, we'll talk about Dana White feuding with Conor McGregor and why. We'll talk to Ian Heinish. He had a big win at UFC 250, has changed camps, and has another fight later this month. We'll dig into the mailbag. Plus, is the way to police reform through Brazilian jiu-jitsu? We'll weigh the merits of that argument as well. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156 at 1 p.m. East Coast time. And, of course, don't forget about said mailbag, Show at gmail.com. You know what's kind of funny, man, is we're living in this era right now where, uh, golly, it is just everybody going after everybody else. You know, I don't know if it's the pandemic. I don't know if it's the protests. I don't know if it's the recession that we're living in or whatever you want to call this economic climate or worse. I don't know exactly. Um, I don't I don't know. I don't know what the situation is, but everyone's just angry all the time now. I'm not even saying I'm above it. I probably have lashed out a time or two in the last couple of months. Maybe you have as well. It's a weird time, you know. But uh, if you look at MMA, everyone is just all over each other with, you know, you did this and uh, you said that and you know, Jesus Christ, it's just, it's an ugly time, you know, and maybe it's time we got some of these issues resolved, but it's an ugly time. So the latest of these kinds of ugly back and forths is the back and forth now between Dana and Connor. Now, Connor retired, as we all know, but before this, um, well, I should say, let's back up a step. So Connor has, if you want to call it retired, I don't know what you want to say about it, but he was talking a bit of a big game around January, uh, related to what, what happened with McGregor, excuse me, what happened with Khabib and Tony. And, um, it's kind of interesting. So, Connor had said back then that if one of them fell out, he would fill in. Now, maybe that was just big talk. I don't know. But the UFC took him at face value. So Dana White yesterday spoke to uh, ESPN's first take. And here's what he said. Quote, talking about Connor. He wants to fight Gaethje. Gaethje just won to get the fight with Khabib. He just beat Tony Ferguson. Connor had the opportunity to slide into that spot if Khabib or Tony fell out. He came back and said, I'm not a replacement fighter. I'm not going to do it. He would be in that position now if he took that fight. He didn't. Gaethje did, so Gaethje gets it. He went on to say, Conor McGregor is frustrated right now because look what's going on. Look what we're pulling off. We're literally just going to Yas Island right now to pull off these fights because the hardest thing to do right now is to get people into the country from other parts of the world. We are a global business. We're the only one pulling off live sports. If I continue to do fights in the United States, I'm going to burn out all my American talent. Now we have Yas Island ready to go. It's just a matter of Connor being frustrated. I think he can't get to what he wants right now. It's just not possible. Of course, what he had wanted was, I guess, the interim fight with Gaethje or the Anderson Silva fight that he didn't want to fill in. And you might be saying, yeah, but he said he would. Right. So go back to UFC 249. Connor said, quote, This is exactly what he said. Quote, likely something will happen there. Speaking of Ferguson and Nurmagomedov. So I'll be ready to slide in for that belt. 
so I'll just have to I'll just have a good solid camp at 170 with no weight cut a good fight I know Donald's a good fighter he has a great record most knockdowns most head kicks most fights most rounds he's got a lot of UFC records under his belt so I'll have a great camp great fight and then I'll just take me into the year I'm looking at this as a season this was the beginning of the season Donald was the first one blah 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 so he said back then he would now fast forward to April his coach said no chance Right? Would he fill in on late notice? Kavanaugh said, no chance of that. Ireland is on a pretty strict lockdown. Me and Connor have no physical interactions. There's no physical interaction at the gym. Gyms are shut down. To try and rush that together, I just don't think it would be smart. He certainly isn't fighting so that he has food for the next six months. That's not where he is in his life. Um, Gaethje is certainly one of the ones that they wanted to fight. That They're interested in it. But... Um, even though McGregor had raised fans' hopes by saying, I'm in shape to fight right now after Nurmagomedov had ruled himself out of the fight, um, Kavanaugh said that, you know, Gaethje was a more likely next opponent for the former two-weight champion before the escalation of the virus outbreak and blah, 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 blah. So everything is kind of all over the place. If you go back to January, before we knew the pandemic was going to hit us, Connor said he'd be ready to slide in. Fast forward, Nurmagomedov can't get it. They give the fight to Gaethje, but they, I guess, at first offered it to Connor. Connor says, I'm not a replacement opponent. Now, is it because of the pandemic? Is it because of the status of it all? I don't know. His coach sounds quite reasonable here, which is, you know, yeah, that's just not a thing we're just going to rush into. We're going to do that the right way, which is what he is now asking for, Connor, according to the UFC. But this is why I just don't heavily buy into what fighters say on social media or at press conferences. They have to say a lot of things to get the fans interested. They have to say a lot of things to get the fighters, you know, uh, talking about them, to get the fans talking about them, to get the media talking about them. And that's a great way to make headlines. Yeah, I'll fill in in case one of those guys falls out. And of course, you know, up to that point, the fight had fallen uh, through four different occasions. So. Let's be clear here. Connor's not given his side of the story as it relates to this particular claim that Dana White is making. Um, the fact that he's not challenged it is kind of interesting, but you always got to be careful with this stuff, man. You always got to be careful. Fighters will say a lot, and I don't think he's in any way afraid of Nurmagomedov or afraid of Gaethje. It, again, it could be just a status thing. Maybe he just changed his mind. Maybe because of the before the pandemic, he felt differently, you know, or he's just saying stuff on Twitter. I don't know the exact reasoning. All I know is whether it's X reason or Y reason or Z reason, what they end up saying and proclaiming about themselves and what ends up being what actually happens, there is usually a fairly wide disparity between them. And sometimes those reasons are good, sometimes they're not. I just, you know, you can't get too caught up in it, man. You just can't. You know, Connor's not a guy who's ever shied away from a challenge. A lot of times, fighters have fallen out, they have replaced him with somebody else, and he just took them on. Whether it's Chad Mendez or Nate Diaz, whether it's 145 or 170, you can't take that away from Connor at all. He's done it multiple times, you know, but maybe he just feels like he's in a different spot now. I don't know. I can't speculate about what the true motives are there other than what he has said previously in interviews in different times, what coaches are saying or what Dana is saying. But it is kind of odd, isn't it? Right? It is a little bit weird that there was this previous glee to get involved 
then an opportunity presented itself, maybe not quite in line with all of his expectations, and it didn't go his way. So take that for what it is worth. But here's what I do know for sure. Everybody is feuding with everybody at this point. The feuds are endless. Good Lord, it is a acrimonious time in the sport, if ever there was one. This week on World of Basketball, Argentinian legend Luis Scola joined the show, and he spoke about the biggest adjustment he had to make when he first got to the NBA. I remember the first couple practice, we going through some five on five, and I make a pass, and I see the guy guarding him, and I thought, you know, it was a clear pass, and the guy comes out of nowhere, boom, like a shadow, <laughs> takes the ball and dunk, and then I make a pick and pop. And I get the ball and I, I feel I'm open and I'm going to shoot. And somebody comes out of nowhere and blocks the <laughs> shot. And I'm like, what is going on? Like, it was totally off timing. Like, those, those guys don't supposed to get there. New episodes of World of Basketball are available every Thursday on the Sirius XM app, Pandora, and Apple Podcasts. We have a guest on the hotline. He just had a big win, really, at UFC 250. He's going to be right back in action Geez, I mean, what, what day is it today? Is it the 10th or something? Yeah, so he'll be in action in 17 days. Quick turnaround for this guy. So let's talk about everything that's going on in his life. It's the one and only Ian Heinish. Hi, Ian. How are you? I'm good, man. How's it going? It's going really well, Ian. Hey, first things first, let's talk about your fight. Congratulations. Uh, the fight did not last long, a minute and 14 seconds. You have to be pleased with this, right? Because it turns out not only do you get a great win, uh, which snapped the two-fight losing streak. Now you get to go right back to action because you took no damage in the fight. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And, and you know, I'm just excited, man, because I didn't get to showcase all the new things I've learned. And, and the, the Hurricane 2.0 didn't really get to show you um, everything, like the violent wrestling and just more tricks on the feet. And so I'm excited, man. I get to step back in there in 17 days, like you said. Uh you know, there's, there's opportunity in a crisis like the COVID, and, you know, there's not many American fighters left that um, are, are willing and able to fight. So, um, you know, it just made sense walking out of there unscathed and still in shape, feeling good and ready to go again. All right, so let's talk about this. How did you end up over at Tiger Muay Thai? What was the reason why you made a switch? And then why did you make a switch there? Um, so it started out, you know, I was just... I knew something mentally wasn't right in the Omari fight, um, even in the Brunson fight a little bit, but mostly the Omari fight. I was hesitant. It, it just wasn't me in there. And so I went out to Thailand for five weeks to just kind of reset and just refocus my mind. And um, I just, just reignited a passion, man. Like, this is what I love. I love to be traveling. I love to be, like, changing things up all the time. And, like, the king of controversies up. Like, I mean – even in the fight week, you know, it was so much controversy with the, the positive COVID tests off the fight, on the fight. Like, and, and that's just, it seems like that's where I thrive. But uh, back to the Tiger, so I went out there for five weeks and I just, I just fell in love with the coaches, the lifestyle, the beaches, and just was like, man. So I left my gym and uh, was making the full move out there and started out just doing an eight-week camp. And I was supposed to fight May 16th, and about two weeks in, gym shut down, and that's when, you know, Trump got on and was like, you have 72 hours to get back. And uh, my wife wasn't out there with me, so I came back because I didn't want to be, like, uh, borders closed on me and be stuck out there, especially when I had a fight in the States. 
And, um, and then, you know, I didn't go back to my old gym. I just didn't feel like the tension and I didn't feel it was right. Like, Hey, I'm leaving, but now I'm back, but I'm leaving again. So I just let, I just let like God lead me to the right people, man. And, uh, I found the right training partners, amazing coaches and, um, it, everything just like synced up so perfect that we were ready to take a fight and we took the opportunity on June 6th. Yeah, so the idea behind the first five weeks at Tiger Muay Thai was, hey, man, let me just go someplace different, someplace uh, sounds like even exotic. You weren't necessarily heading out there thinking to rearrange your life. It just so happened by virtue of the things you discovered once you were there, then you decided to make a broader switch. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. I usually always go on a vacation like to Mexico or somewhere on the beach. It's where it just really rejuvenates me, the ocean and, and the sun and that tropical weather. And, uh, and yeah, so I went out there on an extended one because I know I could get some training out there and just was excited to kind of get some new training. And uh, Nate Marcourt actually decided last minute he was going to come with me. And um, so we just trained all around uh, Phuket and all around there. And we just linked up with the guys at Tiger Muay Thai and the Hickman brothers and really had a great connection with them. And I was like, and about uh, two weeks in, I was like, wow, I'm going to move out here. Like, I just, it just hit me and I felt God speak to me. Like, this is where you need to be right now. And um, so I just, I just, I ran with it. So you have officially moved to Thailand or is that still in the works? So that's still in the works. We were supposed to be there. Um, I was supposed to do that eight-week fight camp, fight May 16th. And then me and my wife were moving there um, on uh, June 1st. And obviously with the, the COVID thing, the borders are still shut down. And um, obviously I wanted to get a fight before I left. So training and um, we're going to have to push it back again. We were supposed to leave July 7th and now most likely we'll be leaving August 7th. So, um, yeah, so we're, we're still not fully moved out there, but uh, it's going to happen in the next month or two. Yeah, I suspect that it will. Uh, Ian Heinish joins us here on the Luke Thomas Show. So in terms of training out there, I, I've actually interviewed the Hickman brothers on this show. I find them to be two very impressive people. But in terms of like training partners, are there other UFC fighters out there? Like who are you really locking up with that is giving you, you know, new looks, new training, new way to think about things? Yeah, so the cool thing about Tiger is, you know, there's about – I would say 40 to 50 guys that are there full-time. They live in Thailand. That's where they, they stay. And then you always have people, camps coming in for a month and leaving and coming in for two weeks. Khalil Roundtree is one of the guys that lives there full-time um, and trains out of Tiger. And, um, and, and there's a few other guys that aren't, uh, that fight one and are up and coming that live there full-time around my weight class. But then we have always like, all these different Russian UFC fighters coming through, the 205ers, 185ers, and um, all these 1FC guys. And the wrestling program is really what uh, caught my attention just uh, with all the, the Dakistani Russians out there. And, um, I mean, especially with the Hickman brothers coaching, it, it was just incredible. The boxing coaches, obviously the Muay Thai is amazing. I felt it, uh, it had everything I needed. Now, in terms of, like, mindset, which was something you had mentioned. I mean, obviously you can see the results in the fight, right? You know, you got after a quick change levels, came over the top of the right hand and that was all she wrote. How did you, you know, it's one thing to train with people who show you different things. How did you get into a new mental gear and, and what, what would you say the differences are? Um, just being who I am, you know, I felt myself 
you know, I bought a house and I got a wife, uh, married this uh, beautiful lady and we were kind of like settling down and like, that's not me. Like my spirit, I'm a nomad. Like I, I have too much adventure inside of me to just settle down. And it was really contradicting. It was too monogamous. I mean, it was too, the same thing every day, driving to the gym, driving to this gym, in my car all the time, always in traffic, eating in my car. And made me really like lose the, the love for the sport and um, being able to fly across the entire world and be able to train out in Tiger and on my day off, go to the beach and swim to an island and come back on Monday. I'm so excited to go to the gym on Monday. And when I was living here, I wasn't, I was looking forward to the weekend more than I was the week. And uh, that's not a place you want to be in your career. That's really interesting. You, you, it takes t- You know what? How old are you, Ian? Uh, 31. 31. You know, it, it, isn't it life interesting? It takes time to figure out who you are and what works for you. And um, even into your 30s, man, like you still sometimes you, you can, there's like nagging things in your life. But uh, it's a it's a it's a hard process to figure out what works for you. I'm, I'm like, I'm very happy that you found it because you can tell, man, it's it's not automatic. It's not easy. No, no, it's, there's a lot of demons there that you got to overcome, you know, and especially coming up two losses. Like, that's why hats off to Ricky Simone coming off his two losses, getting a big win. Hats off to Cody Garbrandt coming off three losses. Like, we were all sitting there in, in a very uncertain place. And it takes a very mentally strong person to uh, cast that doubt out of your mind and get that confidence back and go in there and show people what you know you're capable of. Uh, Ian Heinish joins us here on the Luke Thomas Show. Okay, Ian, so let's talk about this COVID thing that happened where this is the way it was reported to us. It was reported that one of your cornermen had tested positive and then you were out, they had brought in somebody else. Then it gets reported, well, wait a second, we, have to, we don't know that that's true yet because it could be a false positive. Then it gets reported, uh, in fact, it was a false positive and now Ian is back on the fight card. So walk me through what happened here. Let's start with the first part. He gets a test that says he has COVID. Was it a swab or was it an antibody test? Um, it was a it was a throat swab. So, okay. Yeah, everything's going as planned. And Thursday morning comes, I got Jason blowing me up, my manager, and I answer the phone. I'm like, "What's going on, man?" And he's like, "Bro, one of your cornermen um, needs to go downstairs right now." I'm like, "I don't know what's going on. I think he tested positive." And I was like, "Oh, great!" So I sent him down there, and um, they they isolated him in a room, and and basically we started thinking about he trained with like. Neil Magny and uh, and basically the whole car would have been contaminated if you really did who he was around and then who they were around. If you really went that deep with it, uh, potentially the whole car would have fell through. And so it's all on me, kind of. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, how could this happen? And then we sat down and we talked like, how have you been? I asked my tournament, have you been around anyone the last weekend? No, same people. No one's been sick the last eight weeks. We've been training together. Like, um, it just didn't make sense. And I knew, because my wife's a nurse, that they, these, these tests are not that accurate. The blood test is the most accurate. And um, so after a little while, I was like, and in this time, that's when I got wind um, that the media got a hold of it. And that's when my phone started blowing up and it was all over the internet. Ian backed out, he's scared, all these things. Like, and I just had to turn my phone off. And, and Jason actually was like, all right, Ian, you're going to have to fight Brendan Allen in three weeks. And I was like, I can't even look at that right now. Cause I was focused on this fight. 
And, um, you know, Jason's a hustler, so he's making plan B happen already. And um, eventually I was like, I just turned my phone off. I waited five hours. They went and tested him again. And it was the longest five hours ever. And they came back. The test was negative. Hmm. And, um, and it was a false positive. Fight was back on. And then obviously after I knocked Gerald out, they said, hey, you still can fight Brendan Allen. And uh, I think he hesitated a little, but, um, yeah, he took that fight. So here we are. Well, geez, man. I mean, it, it, you, I mean, how are you handling all the stress of that? That must have been maddening. Yeah, you know, Luke, I feel like controversy circles me a lot. So uh, these days I kind of just smile and laugh at it because there's a point in life you, you just can't control certain things. So I'm not going to get stressed and worked up over it, especially it was at a point, too, where I just was finishing my last bit of water and my last bit of food, and now it was time for the real hard weight cut to begin. So, I mean, there was all this temptation. Your fight's off. Why don't you just drink something? Your fight's off. Why don't you eat something? And I just had to stay, use that bulletproof mentality of, of my prison days and just really just focus on, hey, I'm going to fight, man, and if I don't, this is God's plan, and um, I'm, I'm going to be okay with it either way. So just focus on what you can control, and the weight cut is what I can control. And I just focused on that, and about five hours later, we got the results that it was negative, and uh, it all worked out. Now, talk to me about the logic behind taking this this Allen fight. Here's what I mean. I, I certainly understand who he is. I think he's a very tough competitor. A win over him is a very credible win on your resume. So please don't misunderstand the nature of my question. However, you are ranked 13th in the division. He is not ranked. A lot of fighters don't want to take fights when you're in that kind of a position. So what is the logic behind taking it? Yeah, so... Um in the MMA world. And I would never get this fight if it wasn't, if he wasn't just beating guys and, and coming up. He's only had two fights in the UFC, two great wins. But um, I would be trying to push for someone who's ranked, obviously. But in this time of COVID, there's, there's just a few opportunities. And this was an opportunity that came across. And I'm going to take an opportunity when it comes in front of me. I've put in so much work for this camp to make my body how it is right now with all the sparring and everything and uh, coming out of a fight unscathed, which has basically never happened to me coming out without a single bruise. So, um, you know, it's an opportunity to make some money to, um, you know, to showcase more skills to do what I love. And that's what I've been refocusing on is why do I do this? It's because I love the fight. So sometimes you just got to put away rankings and all this and just, there's an opportunity in front of us, and um, I think it's a good one. I know the kid's tough, but I don't believe he's – I know he hasn't fought anyone on my level. And it, I felt it fighting top 15 guys basically my whole career, and then now fighting someone not in the top 15, it feels different. It's a lot different. So um, I think it's an opportunity for me to go showcase more of what I've learned and uh, get a good paycheck and – uh, get another win under my belt before I go back to Thailand and I'll be on track for four fights this year. That would be pretty amazing. Last question about this. Uh, what is the COVID situation yeah. in Thailand? My understanding is they did not have a terrible outbreak. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was not bad at all. And they did a really good job. They didn't freak out and panic like we did here. They actually handled it a lot better than us. And, um, 
yeah, they're doing good. They're just slowly opening the borders and the gyms and the beaches and Tiger Muay Thai open back up. So uh, things are going pretty smooth out there. Wow. And your wife, what does she say about moving to Thailand? She, she must have some reservations about it. Yeah, well, at first, you know, she's a country girl and she's a registered nurse. So um, she had to quit her job. And, you know, at first it was kind of hard for her to change her life so much. But she fully supports me, man. And she knows that this career is so short. We're going to both put everything we have into it and uh, maximize the potential in this career in this short time of our lives. So uh, she's excited for the change and she's excited to be on this adventure with me. Well, you are certainly on an adventure, and uh, maybe you might be on a win streak, too. You get this one on June 27th. Uh, congratulations, Ian, on a great win, obviously. Can't wait to see you on the 27th, and I'm glad you've, uh, you've found what works for you in this life, and I wish you nothing but the best. Yeah, you as well, Luke. Thanks, and I appreciate you always getting me on. Talking to the biggest names in pro wrestling, this is Busted Open. WWE Hall of Famer, Devon Dudley. We don't have Dr. King anymore. We don't have Malcolm X. We don't have some of the great leaders of yesterday that led these peaceful marches and that got results. We need leaders that are respected in the black community that black people will listen to. Busted Open, Monday through Saturday, 9 to noon Eastern, on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Mel time. Mel time. News here. Have a question about MMA, sports, entertainment, or life in general? If people just came to me for the answers, the world would be a better place. Email Luke at LukeThomasShow at gmail.com and get the answers to all those burning questions during the Luke Thomas Show Midweek Mailbag. All right, we're back. Luke Thomas Show. Time for the TLTS Midweek Mailbag. We do it every Wednesday. Luke Thomas Show at gmail.com. Luke Thomas Show at gmail.com. It's your chance to steer the show. Whatever you want to talk about, whether it is uh, booze, whether it is fights, whether it is, I don't know, whatever's on your mind. We're here to help. Cobb, uh, what do we have next? Mail, motherfucker. All right, we'll round out some of this Dana White stuff. Uh, this is an extremely long email, so I'm just going to sum it up real quick from his opening statement. Kind of a theory okay. on why he thinks people don't care about fighter fighter pay. Who's he? Uh, uh, this comes from Brian, who says, uh, the majority of MMA fans, and seems like the fighters too, subscribe to a right-wing ideology. They gravitate to authorita- authoritarian figures like Dana White. An individual lording over the fighters seems rational and comforting to them. Typically, they are anti-union and pro-management. Just shut up and fight because Dana said so. Uh, currently, the close relationship between Dana and President of the United States makes it seem like there's no chance of legislative reform. I don't know how you explain the legal definition of an employee contractor to fans that are largely anti-worker rights. They don't care what they are paid because the owner boss should get rich, even if it isn't fair. What do you think of that, Luke? Well, there certainly is, uh, at least in terms of the online MMA community, I'm not sure exactly how true it is with the wider MMA community. Um, a real right wing bias. I mean, very heavily right wing. Um, you know, there's you, you have UFC fighters tweeting support for conspiracy theories like QAnon. You know, so it's not it's not like uh, these are not George Will conservatives. These are these are MAGA conservatives. Now, I'm not here. Uh, whatever your views is irrelevant because here's what I can say: 
if you talk to these fighters who somehow have these views and, and, and great, you know, uh, supply and the fans too, let, let's start with the fighters. Here, here's what you find out. They have this real compartmentalized identity where they might rail against unions in many other cases, but they won't as it relates to fighters. You know, you have, you, you saw that, um, what you call it? The, um, athletic survey it more than 80% of fighters were in support of a union, right? So whatever their political views, uh, and how those views might lead you to believe that they don't care about or are otherwise uninterested in, um, the kinds of solutions that would, uh, normally not come from people of their political persuasion. They just take the thing that they know works. So I'm not really worried about it. You know, I've had conversations with Randy Couture. I'm like, you're a Trump guy. You know, to me, it's like if the Ali Act ever made it to his desk, there is no way in hell he would sign it, right? Because he is friends with Ari Emanuel, and uh, Ari Emanuel would be, would you know, I, I suspect as the owner of the UFC or one of them, would not really want to be in a position where the Ali Act could redefine the business. They would They would lobby that out, you know. I don't think it ever, they've lobbied it to the point where it's not gone anywhere in Congress. And even if it did, the idea of what Trump would sign is to me seems absurd. And yet, if you ask him, he doesn't think that way at all. He tends to think that he could be convinced and this is a thing they'd get behind. They have this real compartmentalized identity about that. Now, as it goes for the fans, you know, I, I just don't think it's a conversation you can really win with the fans. Nor should you necessarily, I mean, I'm not saying there shouldn't be any public messaging about it. And you're right, it can get kind of in the weeds. But the reality is <clears throat> this court case in Nevada doesn't hinge on what the fans think. Maybe if you had legislation and if it was deemed to be unpopular, that might play a role. Um, but a union doesn't also hinge on what the fans think. It just depends on what the fighters think and how you can mobilize that. So the good news is if you're a fighter, you know, even if they have extraordinary right wing views, they're going to be very in all likelihood very much either pro-union or pro-Ali Act, and either thing would be a benefit for them, of course, in, the, in either case, depending on the particulars. But that's the answer. Next. Answer my question! Right, I'm not sure how, if this is 100% correct, but I'm going to read it anyway. Uh, this comes from Andreas, who says, Hey, Luke, big fan from Denmark here. Uh, across MMA media, I miss a general reflection of the fact that unlike the three-man-owned UFC we knew up until 2016, the UFC today is traded, although not publicly, company. That is an organizational change that represents many different perspectives, but the one I am addressing here is the one concerning Dana White's role and responsibilities as president of the company. As president, Dana White has always worked for the owners of the company. Up until 2016, the Fertitta brothers were the primary owners. Dana owned 9%. Today's UFC primary owner is a group led by Hollywood talent agent WMEIMG, and in addition, a very broad fan of minor investors. As a result, Dana White's hands are very much more tied than they were before. Strategic and tactical decisions today are affected much more by the board of owners. For example, in managerial decisions regarding a conflict with John Jones. Two days ago, we saw Dana White in an interview with Eddie Hearn completely mitigating the situation. Uh, I don't think that that would have happened before the UFC sale. This is just one example of that perspective. What do you think of that, Luke? So what is he asking exactly? I think he's trying to claim that, that when talking about fighter pay, people aren't necessarily taking in that consideration of the fact that Dana has a board to, to report to. Yeah. I mean, what are folks expecting? What, what, what are folks expecting Dana to say? 
you know, are you expecting him to be like convinced by the idea that they should get more money? I mean, whatever the reason is, whether it's working for the Fertitas or a larger entity or the pandemic, there's never going to come a time where he agrees that the pay should be substantively altered from what it is, which again, there's not a salary cap in the legal sense, but they try to keep it 20% and below. And that 20% includes uh, as fighter compensation, USADA costs. That's what they're trying to do all the time. I don't know I don't understand the question. Like, are people imagining that if you had a conversation with Danny, you could convince him otherwise? Like, he's pro-fighter in that way or something? Is that what they're asking? I don't necessarily think he's saying he's pro-fighter. He's just kind of, I think, helping illustrate the point that maybe some of these decisions don't come down to Dana. Maybe Dana's taking too much heat for the way that these fighter negotiations do when he, when he has a... Oh, like, wait, wait, wait. You mean so, like, in his heart of hearts, he actually thinks it should be more and <laughs> it is somehow... Uh, hamstrung and can't get it done. Is that the implication here? I don't know if he's saying in his heart of hearts, but maybe just in that general idea, everyone's coming down on Dana. Like, oh, like, it's all Dana's fault that these guys aren't making more money. Yeah, I mean, there's probably, yes, okay, f- fine. You know, there's probably a wide uh, uh, array of blame to uh, be shared. But if you are under the impression that uh, Dana is, you know, sort of being led to a position he doesn't necessarily agree with fully, I strongly encourage you to read his deposition under oath. It, it would uh, absolve you. Excuse me. It would um, it would quickly uh, uh, disabuse that notion. Uh, okay, next. Message. All right, let's turn the page a little bit here. This comes from Eduardo from Bolivia, who says, uh, hey, Luke, how many UFC slash MMA fight fans are there in the U.S., like broken down into hardcores and casuals? In that sense, it feels like MMA is clearly not for everyone. So how high do you think is the ceiling of potential MMA fandom? Yeah, I mean, there are, you know, the answer is probably millions is sort of the short answer uh, nationwide. Um, and it's not clear exactly how many are hardcore, although I suspect that's probably less than a million. But um Remember, fandom becomes a very difficult thing to define at some point. In the early stages, fandom can be something like, um, um, you know, uh, sorry, not early stages, but I should say in the more hardcore stages, it's everything you would imagine. It's they read MMA news sites. They follow individual MMA members of the media. They have hardcore uh, attachments to certain fighters. They have, you know, much of their life is spent around that. And then it gets sort of weaker and weaker and weaker as you go out. To the point where you get people who may not even call themselves MMA fans in any kind of capacity that you would understand. But, you know, if Conor McGregor's fighting, they'll watch. So are they MMA fans? I don't know. I mean, they're watching it. And, of course, there's some people who never watch. We can clearly write them off the list. But what about the people who, like, you know, have at least paid for a pay-per-view if Conor or Ronda fought? Uh, Does that count? I mean, so at the margins, it becomes hard to know. And at the very, very widest margins where you're getting those kinds of folks, well, then you're getting into the tens of millions at that point, right? Uh, when you're getting a McGregor-sized audience or something like you know, Mayweather-McGregor, right? You're getting people who, they're not boxing or MMA fans, they're just buying that. So always, always understand the further out you go, the notion of fandom becomes less of a relevant consideration or at least harder to define. But if you're asking like hardcore fight fans, you know, there's not many, I think, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand or something. And even that probably is, even that is probably a high number. Next. All right. Bam, motherfucker. All right. 
we've got quite the international audience today. Uh, this comes from Florian from Hamburg, who says, uh, Germany. Hey, Luke, yeah. yeah, he says, hey, Luke, congrats on your show. I listen and enjoy the show every day from Germany. Uh, my question would be, if Daniel Cormier beats Stipe Miocic in their trilogy fight, do you think this is the opening of the possibility of John Jones moving up to heavyweight to face DC for the title and therefore possibly reaching his goal to get that Wilder money? Well, even if he fought DC for a third time, he wouldn't get Wilder money because understand the first two fights with Cormier sold Wilder pay-per-views. And by the way, that's only the last, the only major pay-per-view Wilder has had is the last one. I hope folks understand that. And it was on par with the second fight between Cormier and DC. Like, I know it's like Deontay Wilder money. Like this is some, you know, holy grail of uh, excellence that he's never reached. He's been bypassing that for a decade. I mean, this argument that John is not as popular as Deontay. Okay, maybe Deontay is riding a high now, but Jesus Christ, people are very confused about this. Very confused. John has been outdrawing him for a long time. Uh, but no, I mean, if he wasn't going to get it the first two times, why would he get it a third? DC is not going to stick around. He's going to go. If he wins, he's going to go out in a high note. And like, what is the mechanism by which that would get him that kind of money? A change would have to happen to get him that kind of money. And they're not willing to make it. So, I mean, I understand the nature of the question, which is, wow, what if you had these other, like, really wind-at-your-back kind of circumstances? Would that fundamentally alter it? Maybe. But highly unlikely is my answer. My answer would be no. None of that will. Again, fighters uh, and fans want everything to happen other than the things that work. And I'm not, like, I'm not to be clear, I'm not bashing the question because it's a, it's a, it's I think a lot of people probably wonder the same thing. What I mean to say is, what if you got like this win and then he came up at this moment? Or what if you made this concession and um, uh, this person said this? Guys, either you're going to get a court case one, you're going to get federal legislation, or you're going to get a union. That's it. That's it. That's the only way to get the kind of pay that they're talking about. There is no other way. The, the UFC didn't stop um, putting on shows until not even, the, not even the long arm of the law could stop them. They were just going to have self-regulation on Native American territory. It was only when they were basically compelled to by their corporate owner to, to stop that they did. It's going to be the same with fighter pay. Until an entity so powerful forces them to do, literally forces them to do it, they have no other choice but to do it legally. They're not going to. That's just going to be the way that it is. I hope folks understand that. Let's do one more quick one if we can, Cobb. Answer my question! All right, this comes from Ray in D.C. who says, Hey, Luke, long-time listener of the show. Always enjoy it. Uh, two questions. With the recent spate of retirements and frustrated fighters, does Bellator have an opportunity to snag some big names? And or are there larger problems with the zone that would actually make that difficult? And second, what do you think of the new Freddie Gibbs uh, Alchemist album? I know, everyone's been asking me about that. I have not heard a song yet, so please don't spoil it. I am very behind on that. I've not heard the Run the Jewels album either, so I'm behind on that one too. What was the first part of the question? Uh, do you think Bell, with the recent state of retirements and frustrated fighters, does Bellator have an opportunity to snag some big names, or are there larger problems uh, that the zone is having that would prevent them from doing that? Yeah, I mean, I don't think Bellator and DAZN are long for the world. Um, you know, Bell DAZN's going to have problems staying in business no matter what. But I don't, you know, I've said this before, dude. Like, Bellator 
has 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 financially profited from their relationship with DAZN, but they have not prospered under their um, under their watch. And the reason why is because, as I said before, no one really tells their stories. And I know I'm biased because I work for Showtime. Showtime is owned by Viacom CBS. But tell me I'm wrong because, in the boxing side, they do a pretty decent job of selling their biggest bouts and the stories behind them and what goes into them. It just seems like none of that happens on the MMA side. They don't do any of that. They need a broadcast partner that does for them something similar to what ESPN does. And ESPN, of course, is so unique and very, very different from DAZN in innumerable ways. I just mean to say, whoever shows your fights also needs to be in the storytelling asset producing business. And DAZN, just relative to their MMA properties, they don't do it. And, and when they do it, not very well and not very full-throated and not very interestingly. So they, so you can go to DAZN to watch Bellator events. I mean, you can do that as a subscriber. They air them, but who have they reached out to to get new audiences? Who have they done to tell the stories of the main event fighters? You know, it's very, very little. So I just don't think that's a relationship either of them are going to pursue going forward. Now, when it breaks up and how, yeah, I don't know. I don't quite understand how that all works, but... You know, is that a long-term relationship that I see? I do not. I do not see that as a long-term relationship. Not at all. All right. If you ever want to contribute to the mailbag, you can. LukeThomasShow at gmail.com. Let's open up the phone line, shall we? 877-FIGHT-93. 877-344-4893. There was an op-ed in uh, MMA Junkie yesterday, and it argued a meaningful way to secure police reform in our current climate would be to teach police officers, make it like mandatory, to train in jujitsu. The Yakin Barak Show. Iron Mike Tyson, iconic name, gave us the knee post on Instagram and Twitter. No caption needed. I mean, I, I like Mike's opinion. I would love to hear him speak on it, but I appreciate the post. I think a caption is so important. Being kneeled says it all you know but uh people want to hear your words people want to know what's what's on your mind mike you know you're such an iconic figure uh we love to hear you speak weekdays from 12 to 1 p.m eastern only on sirius xm fight nation channel 156 all right so everyone has watched uh yeah again uh this is going to be hard to sort of completely disentangle political considerations from the conversation but i'm trying my best Everyone has seen the uh, death, probably, or most of you have either watched it or heard about it, of George Floyd. This was the uh, gentleman in Minneapolis who had the police officer uh, kneel on his neck for approximately nine minutes, which uh, subsequent autopsies confirmed led to his death. Um, the cop in question has now been charged initially with third-degree murder, now second-degree. And uh, there have been other issues related to police brutality, either over the years or more recently. But let's focus the conversation merely on that. There was an op-ed yesterday in uh, MMA Junkie, and this is the headline. Brazilian jiu-jitsu training could be instrumental to police reform. Uh, and they make an argument that if you wanted to avoid situations like the George Floyd situation, you could by virtue of having a more uh, ubiquitous acceptance, teaching, inclusion of jiu-jitsu training in a police officer's life. Who thinks that's true? 877-FIGHT-93, 877-344-4893, 877-FIGHT-93. Phone lines are open. I would love to talk more about this with you. Because um, I have to tell you, I don't think that argument is very persuasive. 
I don't think that, first of all, that's a way for meaningful police reform, right? If you posit that there is a problem with police brutality, I actually, and of course, I'm sure some people will disagree, but let's assume that you agree, right? Let's assume that there's a problem with it. How do you solve that problem? Do you teach them jujitsu? I don't buy it. If you go through the article, the point that he makes is that he takes a tweet, the author does, from John Jones. And John Jones at the time when the, when the news was first beginning to spread about George Floyd and the video that you could see the cop kneeling on the guy's neck, he takes the position, John Jones does, like, how could this guy do this? You know, how could he take it and so, so uh, dangerously and even negligently kneel on a guy's neck like this, knowing the, the, the physical consequences? And the author argues, you know, I could tell as well watching this, oh, that's bad because you're going to close off their carotid arteries. You can't do that for nine minutes. It's not, you know, the bad things will happen. And his argument is, if the world's best fighter and me, just sort of a very average jujitsu practitioner, if we can both identify uh, this scenario as one that is dangerous for the uh, person's health, this in the, in the case, the then still alive George Floyd, if they knew jujitsu, they, they would know not to do that, right? Because they would recognize the danger of that scenario. Um, that, to me, is a very not persuasive argument. I have to tell you, I do not find that very persuasive at all. Now, here is basically what I believe. And this is true really of the military, really anything that sets to define your character. Any endeavor that you take in life where it is not only physically taxing and lengthy and difficult and about skill development, but is at its core about rearranging your worldview. Anything you can do like that is only going to work if you surrender to the process. So they'll tell you this, that when you go to a boot camp, when I went to Paris Island in 1998, they will tell you this. They will tell you if you don't surrender to what we are teaching you, you can make it through boot camp. You can, you know, if you're in great physical shape or something, but you cannot actually learn what we're trying to teach you. You have to give in to the system of redevelopment. You have to, you have to surrender to it. The same is true of jujitsu. Not identical, but the, the, the basic plot points are, uh, are the same, which is that if, Yes, you could learn about triangles and omoplatas and shrimping and how to apply chokes and heel hooks and all that kind of stuff. Yes, you can learn all of that. But the idea is that you would learn this in the service of self-defense, of course, right? If you're talking about an average person on the street, but also in this character redevelopment that you would know how to avoid fights, that if you got into a fight, you could control it. There's a famous video of uh, some drunk guy going after Ryan Hall at a pizza place in Arlington, Virginia. And uh, Ryan, who could have, you know, beat this guy within an inch of his life, just takes mount on him until they call the police. And then the police come and they get him. Right. So he just sort of controlled the situation. I think Matt Sarah had done something kind of similar. Right. So it's it's the it, it's once you surrender to that process, you understand application of force. You understand the necessity of it. It's supposed to provide you with a degree of humanity. But here's the reality. If you don't surrender to the process, it doesn't. I mean, I can't tell you how many different people didn't learn that lesson at boot camp. I can't tell you how many people I've trained with who are unmitigated. 
bad people. Straight up bad people. Bullies who will break people's arms for sport, who will use the information given to them uh, as a mechanism to uh, aggravate situations. And I have trained with police officers. uh, And I got to tell you, the ones who show up and surrender to that process, I have no doubt that makes them better policemen by virtue of, again, understanding the force in play and also by the character redevelopment. But I've trained with a lot of other police officers who did not get that message. And I got to tell you, I worried every time they put on a uniform. It, it, it Simply exposing police to um, more specific forms of joint manipulation or strangulation is in no way meaningful reform. In fact, it could even exacerbate the problem. If you want to make training available to them, and if they go on a journey in that process of character development, you might get better police officers in the end. But even then, that's going to be a small number because it's not a lot of people who are going to want to spend a lot of free time over the course of five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years putting themselves through this training, putting themselves surrendering to this character development process necessary to come out a different person on the other side, one who can take care of themselves better and also uh, be better to the people around them who need it or uh, apply force uh, in an appropriate way when the time calls for it. It isn't to say that jiu-jitsu can't get you there, but that's not meaningful police reform. You're talking about a very small number of people that is going to affect. Meanwhile, you could just make a bad situation much worse by telling people who might have uh, racial bias or people who don't have racial bias, but who see civilians as uh, animals to be controlled, who, who view policing as an inherently physical uh, job. And you teach them deadlier tactics, more specific ways to apply force you're not going to get more humane policing. It's not the way it's going to go. So have I seen situations where members of the armed forces uh, and members of uh, the police force or fire department or anything like that, bouncers even, come into an MMA gym, jujitsu gym, surrender to the process and become better people on the other side, not just better people in terms of the application and understanding of force, but the kind of character and responsibility that comes with wielding it, no doubt about it. I've seen it with my own eyes. Uh, And these are great people and they're great for the community. I truly believe that. Have I seen just as many, if not more, do the exact opposite? You bet your ass I have. Jiu-Jitsu is what it will give to you what you want it to give to you. If you don't willingly surrender to the character development, and by the way, you have to be in a school that understands that, you're not going to get out of that. You're going to be what you already are or worse. And if you're a bully, whether you're a police officer or a school teacher or a chef or whatever your line of work is, it's only going to make that worse. It only comes with a character retraining and that is in very short supply hard to guarantee hard to measure not not meaningful police reform at all 
I, I disagreed with virtually everything this article had to say. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at L Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.